Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Amos chapter 3. We'll read briefly from Amos chapter 3. It'll provide a little bit of context for where we're going this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 1. New sermon series beginning this morning from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be covering just Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. When I announced that to my children last night in family worship, there was stunned silence followed by exclamations of disbelief. I seldom cover passages so short. So I said, you know, are you expecting like a 15-minute sermon? And they were not. <laughs> so before we turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4, let's first read Amos 3, 1 through 8. Amos 3. 1 through 8, hear now the word of the Lord. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together? Unless they are agreed, will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out from his den if he has caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Amen. Amos the prophet turns a little bit into Amos the poet and uses a series of rhetorical questions to try and establish forcefully his point. In this series of questions, which are intended to, you know, assume the answer from the audience, Amos is saying, do you not know these things are sure? Traps don't spring up unless there's something in it. Birds don't fall out of the sky unless they're trapped. Lions don't roar unless they've got their kill. And so in like manner, prophets don't preach unless the Lord has spoken to them. The word that the prophets have is not their own. It's God's word. But this word that Amos as a prophet is rooting in God and not in himself is a very special word. Amos is, of course, like so many of the minor prophets, preaching judgment. The coming destruction of the kingdom, either at the hands of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. But Amos begins his series of rhetorical questions with a very important one in verse 2. Sorry, not a question, a statement. You only have I known in all the families of the earth. Why does Israel have prophets and no other nation does? To put it in contemporary terms, why are you all giving up a Sunday morning to sit in hard wooden pews and listen to a guy talk for 
30, 40 minutes. Is it because you believe that what you hear is the voice of God? That's what Amos is asking his audience. Do you not see that the presence, not of me, but of Scripture in the worship service is in fact the voice of God? With that in mind, turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read only verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we will get started with our sermon series through Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here again the word of the Lord. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become so much better than the angels, as he, have, as he has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen and amen. For the past several months, on Monday nights, many of us have been gathering in the house of my neighbor, to enjoy a poetry night. Here in the spring, it's been a series of lectures from several different people on literature and poetry and what it has to do with our world and so on. In the fall, though, it was a series of lectures by one guy who introduced us to the concept of close reading. It's the idea of reading a poem slowly, carefully, thoughtfully, And preferably, out loud. I thought this was a very striking concept that this student of poetry would argue to us that a poem cannot be appreciated as fully as it ought unless it is read aloud. That was striking to me because it reminded me of my days in college where At Geneva, the Bible department professors would remind us almost every week in Bible class, when this book was written, it was written for an audience who by and large could not read. Their relationship to these words was primarily auditory. So I have a homework assignment for you. In fact, I have several. It is a sermon after all. But the first one is this. Find time this afternoon, this evening, this week, and read the book of Hebrews from start to finish. Get a big tall glass of water. You will get thirsty. And read it from start to finish. It should only take about an hour, depending on how fast or slow you read. Some of you will do it in 45 minutes. Some of you will do it in 90 minutes. But about an hour. Read it from start to finish. 
And you know what you'll discover? It's not a letter. It's not a book. In Hebrews 13.22, it says it is a word of exhortation. And if you trace that Greek word over to the Pauline epistles, over to the book of Acts, it is used in only one context. Sermons. Hebrews is a sermon. And when you read it out loud, you will hear the voice of a preacher. Why is it so important that we understand that this book of Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrews, was originally a sermon? Something for the ear primarily and not the eye. Why is it so important that we understand that as a reflection of the larger scriptures? That the book itself was actually meant to be heard. And this is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 says, Faith comes by hearing. Why is the ear the chief biblical instrument for receiving scripture and not the eye? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. God spoke. You see the fundamental truth that we believe about the Bible. That defines us as Christians. Is that we believe it's God's word. We believe that God spoke. Now holy men wrote it down. But we believe that when we open the pages of Scripture, we are hearing the voice of God. This doesn't mean you can't read it quietly in your head. Feel free to do that. That's what I do every morning. It is okay to receive it through the eye. Indeed, it is good. But we must not lose, pardon the pun, sight of the fact that when we read the Bible, when we sing the Bible, when we hear the Bible preached, we are hearing the voice of God. This is Hebrews' burden, to make us see that the Word of God is the voice of God. God spoke. Now notice that he had a method earlier. One method that dominated much of history for thousands of years, he had prophets. Through his prophets, or by his prophets, he spoke to our fathers. The text says at various times and in various ways for a very long time. We know this is roughly 2,000 years, give or take, depending on how you want to look at it, maybe more than 2,000 years. We know that these prophets are actually nameable, Moses and Samuel and David and Ezra and Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. We, we have these names. But there's something very striking about the book of Hebrews. Here in verse 1, he doesn't name the prophets. He doesn't review the various times in history in which God spoke through the prophets. He doesn't go back to the historical record. He also doesn't review those various ways. He doesn't go through and talk about dreams or visions or the different imagery that was given through the tabernacle system. He, did, he doesn't talk about any of the prophetic instruments that were there in the Old Testament. In fact, when you go through the rest of the book, you'll find that this, this spirit of anonymity is repeated and preserved entirely. The book of Hebrews at no point, 
names an Old Testament author. Famously says, somewhere, someone once said. And then goes on to give you an exact word-for-word quote that shows that he has access to the original author. Why is Hebrews intentionally turning the Old Testament anonymous? For the same reason that the author leaves himself anonymous. Church history is full of speculations. Who wrote this book? Huge debates. Lots of arguments. Ultimately, entirely speculative. We have no idea who wrote this book. Humanly speaking. Which is the point of the book. Why did the author leave this book anonymous? Because he wants you to know that the Holy Spirit spoke this book. Why does he quote the Old Testament anonymously? Because he wants you to know that the Old Testament is coming to you from the Holy Spirit. So he begins in verse 1. Various times, various ways, various prophets. But here's what matters. God spoke. Is that your relationship with the Bible? When you sit down and you open the Bible, is it just the world's best literature? Because it certainly is that. When you sit down and open the Bible, is it just your religious ritual to self-soothe your soul? Because it can do that. Or when you sit down with the Bible and you see the words on the page, do you hear the voice of a father speaking to his children? Because the most essential and fundamental point about the book of Hebrews and about Scripture in general is God spoke. Yes, there's different prophets. Yes, there's different times. Yes, there's different ways. There's lots of details we should and can and will go into. But let's not skip over this fact. God speaks. What about your relationship to psalm singing? Do you not realize that we sing Scripture? And that the main goal of it isn't to produce some sort of collective, sweet, glorious sound. Although it does do that, sometimes. The goal is to hear the voice of our Father in the voice of our brothers and sisters. To be united in singing together the word of God that he spoke. What about the sermon? First of all, I know it looks like me, and I know it has all the failings and foibles and frustrations of this preacher, but have you ever considered that when I speak, God is speaking to you? I am not he. I am his humble servant, and I fall far short of his glory, but he uses preaching to speak. He speaks. He speaks in his scriptures when they are sung, when they are read, and when they are preached. Do you come to sermons expecting to hear the voice of God? Do you come to scripture study and scripture reading and scripture singing expecting to hear the voice of God? This is what Hebrews wants us to do. To pay better attention to our Bibles. And to expect the voice of God. Now what will we hear if we make this shift? If if we get away from being lost 
in all the things that we think Scripture is doing, and instead focus on this one thing, this one fundamental thing, that it's God speaking to us, what will we hear? But in these last days, He has spoken to us through or by His Son. We will hear Jesus. This is what God says when God speaks to His people. He says, Jesus. This phrase, in the last days, can be understood a number of ways. It could perhaps simply mean recently. In this way, it is in contrast to the previous phrase. Though long ago, he had many different prophets doing many different things, many different ways. But in these last days, that is to say recently, not long ago, but recently. The second way to interpret it is to mean in the days of Jesus. In these last days, when when Jesus has come on the earth and Jesus has done his earthly ministry. The third possibility is that he is referring to the end of the Old Covenant. In these last days, the last of what? The last of the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices. These are the last days in which God will speak through prophets. These are the last days when God will speak through this diverse kaleidoscope of voices and arrays of historical experiences. From now on, the voice of God will be one. It will be Jesus. In these last days, I think he probably has all three in mind, frankly. That they all harmonize into one vision of the world. We are living in the days of Christ. In which God speaks to his people in one way, through his scriptures. And he speaks to them one message, Jesus. His son is the one that he has spoken to us. The one through whom he speaks, the one by whom he speaks, and the one of whom he speaks. So again, is this your relationship to the Bible? In the title of David Murray, do you find Jesus on every page? Do you sit down with the scriptures in family worship and private worship and think and discuss and struggle and wrestle with how is Jesus communicated to me here? What is this saying about my Jesus? How is this showing me my need for Jesus? How is this showing me Jesus' sufficiency for my need? Do you go to the Bible to hear God? Do you go to the Bible to hear him talk about Jesus? What about your psalm singing? One thing I love about psalm singing is that you can't do it without union with Christ. Yes, you can mouth the words just like the rest of us. But if you're not united to Christ, then the words you sing are not true of you. They are words that can and must only be sung in faith in Jesus Christ. The one who actually lived those words. The ones who actually fulfilled that experience. Psalm 17 makes us sing, judge me according to my righteousness. You can't do that without Jesus. You can't sing that. You can't pray that. It has to move us to hear God say, and Jesus is your righteousness. But then similarly, what about the sermon? Do you come here to hear Jesus? Do you come here to hear about the grace of God in Jesus, the glory of God in Jesus, the goodness of God in Jesus? I warned you over six years ago in my first pastoral's report, first pastor's report, 
I'm a one-trick pony, and I'm a one-note musician. Jesus is all I have to offer. That's it. But here is the truth of God for us, my friends. Here's why this foundational principle is so important. God spoke, and when he spoke, he said, Jesus. Because Jesus is the only way we get saved. Because we need him. And in him is salvation and no other. To make this point, the book of Hebrews then establishes the person and work of Jesus Christ. The next series of lines develop for us three statements about the person of Christ. Who is this son of God? And four statements about the work of Christ. And what has he done? Now, if you take three and you put four together, I'm not the best at math. I actually just messed it up in Sabbath school. But uh, three plus four is seven, which is the number of perfection. The number that shows the fullness of what we need to know about Jesus. When we turn to our Bibles and we expect God to talk to us, And we expect God to say to us, Jesus, here are the three things about his person that we will fundamentally discover. And here are the four things about his work that we will fundamentally discover, which taken together is the totality of who Jesus is and what he does. First, his person. It says that he, according to verses 2 and 3, was appointed heir of all things. Secondly, in verse 3, being the brightness of his glory. And thirdly, in verse 3, the express image of his person. The author of the book of Hebrews, that is the Holy Spirit, is revealing to us that the Son of God is his appointed heir, his glory's brightness, and his person's express image. Let's unpack these three. First, the appointed heir of all things. Now, heir is an immediately understood concept, although we've lost some of its nuance in today's culture. The heir means the one who is with the parent, possessor and owner of all things. There is a statement of equality between the heir and the one that the heir follows. The appointed heir is the one who will receive from the father all that the father possesses. There is an equality between them, a shared ownership between them. But notice that as heir of all things, that is all that God has made, all that God possesses, it all belongs to Jesus. It says that he is the appointed heir. That should create a little bit of dissonance. If God speaks to us in the scriptures and tells us of his son, we would expect that son to be fully divine as he is. Indeed, he is fully divine. Then why would he be appointed heir? The reality is, is that Jesus, as the eternal son of God, is eternally heir and is of no need of appointment. But Jesus took to himself humanity. And in your flesh and in your blood and in your place, he humbled himself and became a servant to the point of death. And it is that God-man who was appointed heir of all things. 
This is the Jesus we are talking about. Who shares rulership and authority with God Almighty in heaven in his humanity. He was appointed as heir, as God-man. But secondly, it says that he was the brightness of his glory. This phrase is, again, arresting, causing dissonance. God's glory having brightness. Have you ever considered God's glory having degrees? He is the peak of God's Everest. He is the north star of God's night sky. He he is the brightness of his glory. That retina-burning Shekinah glory that made the skin of Moses glow reaches its climax in Jesus. Again, the emphasis is on the equality between father and son. They have a shared glory, just as they have a shared possession and inheritance. But so too, by saying that he is the brightness of that glory, the author is emphasizing the coming of that glory into the world, the revelation of that glory. That that glory is not merely contained in the skies or in the creation, but is expressed in humanity. That brightness that emanates from him. A burst of glory that comes out from heaven and dwells with us on earth. I mean, that's what you see, right, when you read the Gospels? The brilliant, blinding glory of God. In fact, transfiguration is the only time that it seems to come through. Perhaps the resurrection, but ultimately we end up reviewing the life of Jesus and that brightness of divine glory looks kind of dull and ordinary. Looks normal. Looks human. And that is the tension the author is giving to us. When we consider who Jesus is, we're considering the one who is equal to God in power and in glory. And yet fully human. Thirdly, he is the express image of his person. Your ESV will say the exact imprint of his nature. To take apart this phrase, express or exact means total, complete, exactly as it was, nothing deviant or devoid. Everything is exactly the one as the other. By image or imprint, I mentioned this in Sabbath school this morning, this is that wax part of the ring going into the wax, and it impresses in the wax, and the wax hardens, and that wax is now the exact imprint or image of the ring. That if you were to take divinity... And if you were to stick it into humanity, that original divinity would be undiminished, undamaged, exactly as it was in glory, but now in humanity. For divinity was not a ring impressed upon wax. Divinity is a person who took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. By this, we come to the word, his person. The ESV translates it, his nature. The Greek word is immediately recognizable, his character. That's the Greek word. 
his character. All that is God, all that he is, in his glory, his majesty, his wisdom, his goodness, his grace, his beauty, is in Jesus. All of it. Everything that is God, Jesus is. He is the exact imprint. So if we review these three statements about who is Jesus, we end up with this cascading and climaxing poetic imagery of Jesus is God and man. But it's also pressing us toward this application. So if you want to see the power and the strength and the majesty of God, look at Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He is heir of all things. If you want to see the glory of God, the shining brilliance of His light, His wisdom, His beauty, look at Jesus. He is the brightness of His glory. And if you want to know the character of God, if you want to know who He is, if you want to know what He's like, Look at Jesus. He is the exact imprint. He is a human who perfectly, sinlessly, completely reflects, images God. Are you with me? Because this is Jesus. This is why God says to us in the scriptures, Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He is the way we know God. He is the one through whom God is known to us. Who is Jesus? He is God and man in one. He is the reconciliation of God and humanity. But then there are four statements about his work. What does Jesus do? If this is who Jesus is, then what does Jesus do? First, in verse 2, we see that through whom also he made the worlds. Again, in verse 3, upholding all things by the word of his power. But also, he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name. First, back in verse 2, we are introduced to the work of Christ at the beginning of the world. That this Son of God, who is God in flesh, who is the heir of God, sharing with him rule and power and authority, who is the brightness of his glory, the revelation of his majesty, who is the exact representation of him in humanity was with him in the beginning. Through him, he made the worlds. Do you guys remember Genesis 1? How did God make the world? And God, what's our verb? Spoke. What's Hebrews 1.1? God spoke. And when he spoke, what did he say? He said, Jesus. What is the first recorded word out of the mouth of the Almighty? Let there be 
light. And who came into the world saying, I am the light of the world? According to John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the God who is at his, only, at his side, he has made him known. When in the beginning God spoke, what he spoke was Jesus, the Son, the Word of the Father, who would later in years in flesh appear among us. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the one through whom God the Father made the worlds. He is the great creator. He is the great word of creation. The instrument by which the worlds are made. This is an important point in terms of the work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who out of the mouth of the Father went forth to accomplish the will of the Father. This is our point that is so important. What does Jesus do? He does the will of his Father. He's a son. And as a son, he does the will of his father. How do you know what the father wants from a tree? Jesus makes it a tree. How do you know, far more important, what God wants from a human? You look at Jesus, and he's a human who does the will of the father. He comes forth from the Father in order to accomplish the will of the Father. He is the one through whom all the worlds were created. But not only is He the word of creation, He is the word of power through whom creation is sustained. This in verse 3. That who, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power. By this we speak of history and of providence. That in Jesus all of history is upheld, vindicated, and defended. We again spoke about this in Sabbath school. What is God doing when he shakes the nations? And empires fall and kingdoms collapse. He is speaking his son Jesus. He is saying the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdom of my Lord and of my Christ. This is what he is saying to the world. He is speaking King Christ into the kingdoms of this world. He is the one ruling over the history, giving it meaning, giving it purpose, giving it an end to which it is going. He is the word of his power who makes providence play out the way it does. Do you want to make sense of this messy life and its myriad of problems? You've got to learn to hear God say Jesus. Because your life doesn't make sense without Jesus. It never will. He is the one who brought this world into existence. And he is the one to whom this world's existence is going. He is the word through which providence and history move. But then, thirdly, he purged our sins. You see... God spoke. And when he spoke, he said, Jesus. And when Jesus came, as it were, by metaphor, out of the mouth of the Father, the world was created. And all of the world was sustained. But why? Why was there a world in the first place? 
And why did he bother to preserve it? Why has he bothered to preserve it? Why has he bothered to leave this church here? Why has he bothered to bring you and me here? Why has he bothered to bring these babies to us? And to bless us with this future? Why? That he might purge our sins. That he might bring us into fellowship with him. He went up and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having accomplished the purging of our sins. Just as Jesus is the word that brought the world into existence, so Jesus is the word that is bringing sin out of existence. He is purging this world of sin. Just as Jesus is the word that is making sense of this history and this providence, so he is the word that is bringing this history to a sinless conclusion, that is bringing it to a climax of righteousness, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus is the word that God has spoken to us in the scriptures, that the world might be, and that the world might be made new. He has purged our sins and sat down. He is done. It is accomplished. It is finished. This is the work of Jesus, creator, sustainer, redeemer. But then we are introduced to his fourth work in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You see, what does all this have to do with us? What is the point? It is, on the one hand, very exciting to me to preach a sermon that simply says, when you go to your Bibles, listen to the voice of your Father. And listen to Him say, Jesus. His heir, His glory, His image. See there, hear there from your Father how He made all things, sustained all things, and redeemed all things. But now in verse 4, the work of Jesus is to outshine or eclipse the angelic beings, a lot more about that next week, by a better name. How does He have a better name? Well, on the one hand, you can review the text. He has a better name because he is the Son of God, and no angel is called the Son of God. He is fully God, and no angel is fully God. But do you know what else the text just taught us? He's fully man. And there is no angel in heaven who is fully human. There is no angel in heaven who can match Jesus For majesty and glory and power and divinity. And there is no angel in heaven who can match Jesus for sympathy and compassion and mercy. As he is fully human. He has a more excellent name. A name that Paul tells us is above every name. A name at which every knee bows and every tongue confesses on earth. And in heaven. 
the kingdoms of this world and the angels of glory together acknowledge the supremacy of Jesus, whose name is above every name. A name which, according to Acts chapter 4, is the name by which we must be saved. When God speaks, he says the name Jesus. And when God created the world, it was to say the name Jesus. And when God played out history in all of his wisdom and beauty, it was to reveal Jesus. And when God came to us to save us, it was in the sending of his son, Jesus. This was to give us his glory, his grace in one person, in Jesus. Do you not see that whether you're a lover of creation or a lover of history or a lover of humanity, what you're looking for is Jesus. He's the one you're looking for. It's not you. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your pastor. The thing you're looking for, the one you're looking for, is Jesus. And he's right here. In the sermons that are preached, in the psalms that are sung, in the scriptures that are read. He's the one you're looking for. So look to him continually. My senior year, there was a class project where boys and girls were going to pair off for the project. And in a little hat were all the girls' names. And the teacher was going to go around the room and have the boys pick out a name, and that was your partner. My teacher brought the little hat to me first, pointed to a slip of paper and said, you want that one. It was Lydia's name. Here's your slip of paper. God has come into the world and handed you a piece of paper and said, you want Jesus. He's the one you're looking for. He is God in flesh. He is the grace of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God. All that is God is Him. But He's also all you. He is the sacrifice for your sin. He is the righteousness you lack. He is the compassion and healing you need. Jesus is the one you're looking for. Look continually to Him. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the sun shining in its strength that reminds us of the light of your glory in Christ. We give you thanks for the bright blue sky, the warmer weather, the promise of a beautiful world in which flower and tree and shrub are radiant with color. And we give you thanks for a day that outshines the weather. A day of grace and of glory in which the good news of Jesus Christ is declared to us with authority, with grace. And we give you thanks, our Father, that we have heard such a word today. Father, forgive us that we have filled our ears with so many words, but not Jesus. 
Father, forgive us that we have filled our eyes with so many things, but not Jesus. Father, forgive us that we have filled our minds and our hearts with so many worries, so many cares, so many sins, so many sorrows, but not Jesus. And Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for these four short verses in which, through the power of your Spirit, we are undone and held captive before you. There is nothing as beautiful and as glorious and as wonderful as Jesus. Thank you for showing him to us. Unite us now to him by faith that we would leave this place in love with him and resolved to obey and glorify him. For this we ask in his precious name. Amen.